Hey there, welcome to another Renew.org Network podcast. I'm Jason Henderson. And I'm Dave Stovall. Welcome, everybody. We have uh, something a little bit unusual, a little bit different than what we normally would podcast. We're talking about the Enneagram today. The Enneagram. I'm pumped about this, man. I yeah, really am. I've seen this. It, so we did a micro course. There's six hours in its entirety. We did it with a really intelligent guy. This guy's name Shane Wood. He is the Associate Academic Dean at Ozark Christian College, got a PhD from a school in Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, he knows his stuff about the Enneagram. When we advertise this on Facebook, I got to tell you, Dave, I learned two things this year that were uber controversial that I never knew were controversial topics. Do you know what they are? No. Masks (laughs) and the Enneagram. (laughs) And I get it. I mean, just by the symbol alone, I'm looking at it now. It looks a little weird. It looks a little like, is this satanic? Yeah, it does. It does. And and it has been popular, not just in Christian circles, but also in New Age circles and secular circles and pagan circles. And what the great thing is, though, is Shane, in this first little introduction that we're going to share he addresses that, and I think he does it well. Yeah. I will say this, uh, because it is controversial, and I don't want to sound insensitive to those that are wary about the Enneagram or, or wary about New Age, because I think there is some good things that come through us being uh, wary and us being on guard. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's good for Christians to always be looking for where Satan might be prowling, but I'll just say this. We've got a book. It's available for free at Renew.org called Conviction and Civility. It's one that Bobby Harrington, our point leader, and I um, authored. And in it, we talk about a paradigm of essential, important, and personal beliefs. And we are not saying that the Enneagram is essential or salvific or you've got to have this as part of your Christian walk. That's We're not saying that at all. What I will say, though, using that same framework that we introduce in the book is It could be important if you've got people around you that are uh, part of the people that are finding this a very popular tool and they're not Christians, this might be a way that you can engage with them. That could be an important tool to your evangelism and discipling of others. And from the personal perspective, if you buy into what Shane explains that you're going to hear in just a minute about how this is just like any tool that we might come across where could it be used by pagans and people who don't believe in God? Absolutely. But could it also be used by Christians in order to promote uh, a biblical worldview? Absolutely. And if and if it's just a personal decision that you can make and be comfortable with, then fine. But I guess my point is, if you have any trouble with this, if you think the Enneagram is still problematic after you listen to this podcast, by all means, we, we don't think this should be forced upon anybody. We don't find it as uh, an essential truth or anything of a salvific nature. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. I'm glad you explained it that way too. So uh, yeah. So having said all that, let's hear Shane Wood introduce this tool we call the Enneagram. Welcome to this study entitled Exploring the Enneagram through Renew.org in sponsorship with Ozark Christian College. My name is Shane Wood, and I am so excited to get to hang out with you over the next several hours studying what is this Enneagram thing? How do we engage it? Um, Answering questions like, is it biblical? Or, or what do we do with the types? And we're going to dive into all kinds of things. But in this first session, what I want to do 
is I want to lay down the theological foundations. I, I, I talk to my students here at Ozark all the time, and I tell them, I say, listen, if your theology doesn't impact absolutely everything that you do, all that you are, then it is absolutely worthless. And I find that to be true in studies like this as well. I don't just approach the Enneagram as a, a curious person looking into a strange symbol. <laughs> no, I approach the Enneagram as a theologian, as somebody that is rooted in scriptures, rooted in the Bible, and wrestling with this question, how do we engage this for the glory of Christ, for the betterment of his body, for the transformation of all that is broken? And that's actually where I want to start our investigation into the theological foundations of our study. I want to start in the beginning, in the very beginning. <laughs> so we're talking Genesis chapter one, first chapter of the first book of the entire Bible. And you, you know the story, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then day one comes and day two, all the way up until day six. On day six, God creates humanity, male and female. As a matter of fact, let's go ahead and look at the text. Genesis chapter one, Verses 26 and 27, God says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And I even just throw in there at the end, in his image. Why? Because the verses are all about us being created in God's image. Notice this in the Bible, when, whenever you have the text, repeating over and over and over again the same idea or the same phrase, it might mean because they're kind of wanting to focus on that phrase. It, it's almost like my kids. My kids come in from outside and they're, you know, or from school, and my youngest is like, Dad, the playground is amazing. It has this slide, and I went down the slide, and then I got down to the bottom and went back up the slide, and then I went down the slide again, and eventually I just go, okay, okay, you kind of like the slide. <laughs> Because he just keeps talking about it over and over and over. And the same thing is true in this text. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. The creation of humanity, the creation of male and female, over and over and over in the text, it talks about us being created in God's image. Because that's where the Bible begins. The Bible begins with this truth. We were created holy. We, we were created broken. We were created holy, created in the image of the triune God. Let us make mankind in our image. He created male and female in his image. We, at our core, are holy. But you know as well as I do that there's a problem. <laughs> the problem occurs in Genesis chapter 3. See, after Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 kind of retells the story of creation, this time looking at day 6 and slowing it way down, where, where Adam has all of the animals parade in front of him looking for a suitable companion. And Adam's like, sorry, God, you just, you just, you just didn't create a, a companion good enough. I mean, which is kind of a bold thing to say to the Lord. And the Lord's like, I'm not threatened. It's okay. Instead, God says, go to sleep. And then from Adam's side, he creates life. He creates Eve. It reminds me of Jesus on the cross where from his side flows life. And at the end of Genesis chapter 2, it says the two, they will leave their husband, their, their mother and father, and the two will become one flesh. Union is how chapter 2 ends. And then comes chapter 3. 
this wily little serpent coming in just to kind of mess everything up. Matter of fact, we know the story of Genesis 3 so well with the serpent tempting the woman to eat the fruit, and she eats of the fruit, and the next thing you know, everything is broken. We know it so well that sometimes I like to to read it with a little bit of a fresh perspective. Matter of fact, one of my favorite renditions of Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, comes from John Milton's Paradise Lost. So he, he writes this poetically, and this is the moment whenever Eve sinks her teeth into the fruit. It says this, so saying, her rash hand in evil hour, forth reaching to the fruit she plucked, she ate, earth felt the wound, and nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe that all was lost, that all was broken, that everything that God had created and called good had now been marred with a different union, a union with death. So notice how the narrative so far is progressing, because this will be important. We were created holy, but then we were broken. And God's reaction to this brokenness can only really be understood through the, through the, through the lens of the broken heart of a father. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Let's read it together, but let's read it with the emotion of God the Father. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Like, how cool would that be? <laughs> to hear the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How exciting. How, in how incredible. But what is their reaction? Next part of the verse. And they hid. Adam and Eve hid from the Lord God. They didn't celebrate his coming. They ran away. Why? Because that's what shame does. That's what brokenness does. Whenever the light approaches, it cowers. It clings to the darkness. It grabs a hold of the fig leaves that are supposed to cover us from our shame, but in reality, represent shame itself. So God is approaching them. They run and hide from the Lord God, it says, among the trees of the garden. But then notice verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man. The Lord God called to the man this question. Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> I mean, it's not as if the all-knowing God didn't know the location of Adam and Eve in the garden. No, it's the longing of a broken heart of the king, of the one that created us in his image that is looking for us. And I don't believe God just asked that question in Genesis chapter 3 and stopped asking it. No, 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 far from it. I believe God has been asking that question every single day ever since this moment. Notice the progression. We were created holy. We were broken. And God is calling. As a matter of fact, I would argue that it is this angst inside of us, this longing for something more than what we are, is the image of God inside of us trying to respond back to the God who created us in his image to begin with. He never stops asking the question, where are you? He never stops pursuing you. 
And for those of us that are running, that creates angst. But for those of us that turn and face the light, that's when transformation begins. This is the beginning of of the Christian faith. This is what it is that, that sets up the stage for the rest of the Old Testament, for the coming of Jesus. And what's interesting is this is also the beginning place of the Enneagram. The Enneagram believes that we were created holy. That at the core of who we are, we were created holy. But something was broken. Something was distorted. Something was marred. And something inside of us is longing to return home. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, you can get the whole entire Shane Wood six-hour micro course on the Enneagram in our digital locker. Here's how to get access. Anyone committing to a recurring donation of $25 a month or more is considered a supporting member of Renew.org. Supporting members get access to our digital locker with dozens of hours of quality video and audio posts like the one you're listening to now. In addition, members will periodically receive free books, discounts, and other exclusive benefits from Renew.org and our partner ministries. So please go to Renew.org and donate today. So one of the things that is fascinating is when it comes to the Enneagram studies, some people will will attack the Enneagram for a multitude of reasons. And frankly, over the first really uh, session or two, we're going to go over those. But one of the things the Enneagram gets attacked about the most is this. The Enneagram is just really individualistic. It's just really focusing on, on just the individual. It's just focusing on, on the one instead of, and just ignoring everybody else. It's kind of selfish. And I'll be honest, you know, there, there, there are ways and there are, um, you know, people that do use it selfishly. I mean, let, let's be honest though. We don't need the Enneagram for us to be taught how to be selfish. <laughs> we can pretty much figure out a way to be selfish with anything that God has given us, that the world gives us. It doesn't matter. We are unique. We are creative when it comes to our, our ways of finding of how to be self-centered. But what I, what I want to do is I want to change this question a little bit, and I want to do it with something that I call oxygen mass theology. Whenever I flew on the plane for the first time that I can remember, my parents told me that I flew before this, but the first time I remember was when I was 19 years old. So I'm 19 and I'm actually, I'm like, hey man, why don't we just dive right in? So instead of, you know, flying up from Missouri to Indiana, I just decided where well, I'm going to the Middle East. You know, it's the summer after 9-11 and I wanted to go, um, well, I wanted to go love Muslims in the name of Jesus because I felt like that was the best way to respond to the brokenness that was taking over our world. And so I remember sitting on the plane and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm actually moving into a place where I feel like I'm willing to sacrifice myself for the kingdom. And as I'm in there and I'm buckling my seat, they start giving the instructions. You know, I mean, if you go to a plane today, they'll give the same instructions. I feel like they've never been creative. I hope they've been more creative on the engines than they've had the the instructions. See, instructions have stayed the same. (laughs) And the instructions go like this. If the cabin happens to lose pressure, then you will have oxygen masks that fall down from above. And when you receive those, they always say this. Make sure you first put your mask on before you help others. I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, you selfish bunch of pagans. 
You're going you're gonna to selfishly put yours on first. No, not me. I'm helping out those that aren't able to help themselves. So if it's a kid, if it's someone older, if it's somebody you know that has a disability, I'm helping them first because the first will be last, last will be first. Blah, blah, blah. Here's why that was dumb. Because if you don't put your oxygen mask on first and the cabin loses pressure, then something starts to happen to your brain and you start to, well, lose consciousness. So answer me this question. If you lose consciousness, how much are you going to be able to help the person that can't help themselves next to you? <laughs> no, you put yours on first so that then you are able to help those that cannot help themselves. In, in my arrogance as a 19-year-old, I was walking into foolishness. But one of the things that the Bible teaches us and that I'm going to exhort right now is this. It's okay for you to put your oxygen mask on first. Not so that then you have oxygen flowing and no one else does, but so that then you'll be prepared to help others put theirs on. Where am I getting this? Just the greatest commandment in the entire Bible. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 39. You know this story. Somebody comes to Jesus and they say, Teacher, anytime in the Gospel of Matthew someone says, Teacher, it's usually a trap. <laughs> so, Teacher... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? I think you have to read that smugly if it's a trap. So, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, you know this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And all the Jews would have said amen. Why? I mean, he's quoting the great Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Something that the Jews would have repeated every single day. But then Jesus says something weird. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. To which I say, hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what is like the first? Explain to me what is like loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And Jesus says, well, let me explain it to you. The second is like the first. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Now, here's what I find interesting about that. Jesus makes the linchpin of the second commandment, which in a sense is the link to the first commandment. He makes the linchpin, the thing that without it, none of it works, the ability to love yourself. You love your neighbor as you love yourself, which means if you don't know how to love yourself, you're not going to know how to love your neighbor. And if you don't know how to love your neighbor, then there's probably something that's going to break down in your ability to love the Lord your God with all that you are. Why? Because if you hate all that you are, or you don't know all that you are, then how in the world can you give it to the Lord? If it's covered in fig leaves and you're trying to hide it in the darkness, how can you bring it to the light? See, there's a part of this equation that oftentimes we overlook. We were created in the image of God. And if you do not know how to love and nurture and take care of the image of God in you, then you will not know how to engage the image of God in others. And you will not know how to engage the God in whom's image we were created in to begin with. So no, I, I, I do not find inner work, self-care, self-awareness, learning how to love yourself. I don't find that selfish at all. I find that as the entry point to the second and eventually the first greatest commandment. Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Why? Why is this true? It reminds me of an adage I say to my students all the time. I say this, listen, when it comes to Christian discipleship, when it comes to you helping others, you can only take people as far as you yourself have gone. 
the deeper that you dive into God himself, the more that you will know the tributaries and the paths that lead to the healing that everyone is longing for. So no, I, I, I don't find this selfish whatsoever. I don't find this individualistic whatsoever. I find this to be a response to exactly what Christ was asking us, and that is to put your oxygen mask on first. Now, shortly around the time of people's accusation of the Enneagram being individualistic, they will also uh, usually throw this accusation towards the Enneagram. But, I mean, the Enneagram isn't biblical, is it? Man, I, th I think it's a fair question. We should ask that question. Is the Enneagram biblical? Now, I'm one of those that, that whenever you ask a question, I usually ask a question back, not because I'm trying to dodge it, because I'm trying to figure out what you really are saying. Because a lot of times what I find is, is that I ask a question, I don't even really know what the depths of my question is until somebody starts to help me unpack it. So is the Enneagram biblical? Here's my question back. What do you mean by the word biblical? Do you mean like, can we find the word in the Greek of the Bible? The answer, if that's what you mean by biblical, the answer is no. I mean, are, are you asking, is the symbol, you know, emblazoned in the stars in Revelation? If that's what you're asking, the answer is no. But to which my response back is, but if that's what you're asking, and we are only allowed to engage anything where the word is inside of the Bible or the symbol is in the Bible, then what do we do with the Trinity? Because that word's not in the Bible. <laughs> but I, I kind of want that. I don't want to be a polytheist. I don't want to believe in multiple gods. I want to believe in the three in one. I believe that it is rooted in the Bible. I believe that that word is not inappropriate to use when we look at what was revealed in the Bible. But if you're asking if the word Trinity is biblical or the symbol of the triangle is biblical that we use to describe the Trinity, and your definition is, can I find it in the Greek? Then the answer is no. Some people, though, what they're really asking about is the history of the Enneagram. Isn't it new age? Doesn't it come from, from all kinds of pagan, non-Christian origins? Let, let, let's just for a moment here trace a little bit of the history. Over the last 40 to 70 years, yes, absolutely, it has been dominated by that ream. Not completely. <laughs> Christians have been, pre, have been doing this actually for, wait for it, centuries. As a matter of fact, we can go all the way back to the middle of the 300s. A man by the name of Evagoras of Pontus, who was a very influential monk, who was, who was even contemporaries and disciples of the Cappadocian Fathers. And you're going, I don't know these names. Cappadocian Fathers, you need to think. They're the ones that helped us solidify the language of the Trinity that we find in the Nicene-Constantinople Creed from 381. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> Without these guys running around speaking and preaching from the Word, we would not understand the concept clearly or be able to articulate Jesus is fully man and fully God. Evagoras is a part of them. And Evagoras is also incredible with his discipleship, especially when it comes to things like prayer, especially when it comes to the things that destroy like, like cancer inside of us what is holy. As a matter of fact, Evagoras of Pontus is the one that is credited with the seven deadly sins. Although he really has a, has a whole book on eight thoughts, which is really developed into nine thoughts, which become the nine, nine root passions of the Enneagram. You're going, I didn't know there were nine passions of the Enneagram. We'll get there. The whole point I'm trying to make is this has actually been dealt with a lot throughout the Christian history. Evagoras of Pontus, in the, in the beginning of his book on prayer, 
actually uses the Enneagram symbol as a way to introduce 153 teachings on prayer for his disciples, 153, one for each fish that is caught after Jesus' resurrection at the end of John's gospel. He's using the Enneagram in discipleship settings in 300. He wasn't the first and he won't be the last. We see it with Raymond Lowell in the Middle Ages. We see it throughout the Jesuits throughout the last several hundred years. Now, don't get me wrong. The Enneagram's gotten popular in Christian circles in the last, you know, 10 years or so. But it was a part of Christian discipleship since the earliest strata of the early church. So am I saying that the Enneagram, it belongs only to Christians and pagans stole it. No, it has, just like math, <laughs> gone a lot of different routes. But I don't think just because pagans interacted with math that we want to allow math to go away and not use it as Christians. No, that, that seems to be to be strange. I mean, pagans have also used the Bible strangely. They've also used Jesus strangely. But it doesn't mean that because it has been used elsewhere that it is never, ever at all Christian or inappropriate for Christians to engage. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the Enneagram, I can't help but think of this passage from Paul's gospel, or from Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Paul says this, We take every thought captive. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So that was Shane Wood telling us about the Enneagram. And I don't know about you, but I just loved hearing about what he said, especially about the historicity of the Enneagram, but also kind of breaking it down practically what it means and what it can do and how you can use it as a tool. What did you think about what he said? Yeah, I thought it was great. I'm not sure if we included it in the clip or not, but the Enneagram word itself actually also has a pretty... It sounds all new agey and weird because we don't use that word in day to day. But just like, um, and this is probably a bad example because pentagram is a satanic symbol, but <laughs> but just like the pentagram is a five-sided or five-pointed symbol, uh, Enneagram is just a word that means nine, a symbol of nine or a nine-sided object. I didn't know that. Did he say that in this whole thing? I don't, I, think, I don't think we got to that point. I didn't hear that part. So what number are you on the Enneagram? I got to know. <laughs> So I am a seven, and that is called the enthusiast. Nice. What's like a like in a nutshell, like in a, a sentence or two? What what does that mean? So we like to have fun, and we 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 can be good workers, and we can do things well, but we just like to throw ourselves into stuff and have fun while we're doing it. That's awesome. So yeah, in fact, one of the things I learned about being a seven is that um, sometimes I come across very critical. And it's, it's not necessarily because I want to be negative uh, or I want to just point out the bad, but it's because I, I envision myself, like if you were to say, hey, I got this plan, we should do X, Y, Z, I immediately envision myself doing it. And if there's any part of it that doesn't seem like it would be fun, like we might run into a snag, I want to call that out early because I just want to have fun while we do this, not have a bunch of issues. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's helped me. Do you, know your, do you know your Enneagram I number? do. I'm a one. I'm the perfectionist ah. and, or the reformer, as they call it. And for a long time, I thought I was a four, but I found out that the reason I thought I was a four is because I was a really unhealthy version of a one. Of a one, When yeah. I'm unhealthy, I go to this kind of like uh, 
envious, um, nobody understands me place. And uh, I found out that if I can kind of shift that focus to a seven, from one to seven, that's actually my healthy part of just ah, enjoying cool. and like, yeah, come, come you know, go have seven. fun and like be spontaneous because ones, we have a severe inner critic. I thought everybody did, but I realized that's kind of like a thing for ones. Just you. And it's just me. <laughs> and, and, other, and other ones. And other like ones too. It's actually freeing to know that I'm not the only, only one to feel that way. Yeah, sure. But we have this drive towards perfection because we do that because we want to avoid punishment and we want to be loved for the like our performance. Well, and you're weird? an artist too. And so. I know. And it really it kind of describes uh, my drive and it describes uh, the passion that I have and, and the way that I create music because I will... I will work on one song. I would, I could do it for years and never show it to anyone to be like, I just got to fine tune this one little thing. I can totally see that too. Like <laughs> you've got like dog hearing when it comes to producing like audio tracks, like you'll play something and you'll be like, Oh, sounds awful. And then you'll like run it through some production stuff and you bring it back. You're like, listen to this. And I'm like, sounds the same to me, Dave. You're like, no, it's like amazing now. So much better now. And if we would have released it this way, nobody would have liked it. <laughs> so funny. But so, Hey, if, any of this to you listeners, if any of this doesn't, if you're like, wow, like I have no idea. I'm not following them. Seven, nine, one, healthy, unhealthy. I don't understand the terms they're using. Guess what? The good news is Shane continues on from the introduction and he breaks down each of the nine numbers, uh, what that means. He's got a couple of different theories on how to use the Enneagram to become healthier, just in your self-awareness, as well as in how you uh, interact with others. And so the six hour video micro course it explains all of that really, really well. In fact, it's broken down in these little one hour or less chunks. And uh, I actually uh, plan on my wife and I are going to walk through it together, kind of like as a series of devotionals I'm going to have with my wife. We're just going to take an hour at a time and it'll be a way for us to come together uh, really well. Like instead of watching a TV show for an hour, we might just sit down and That's really cool, actually. do an hour of this study. Where do people find these one hour videos? Ah, glad you asked that. So- we have a digital locker. The digital locker is made available to any supporting member of Renew. A supporting member of Renew is defined as anybody who's made the commitment to support us for 25 bucks or more per month. So if you're listening and you want to get this microcourse, it's really easy. Near the top of the renew.org website, there's a little button that says donate now. And you go there and you commit to any amount of uh, recurring donation above 25 bucks and we'll get your information you get all kinds of benefits. We'll send you free books. You get the access to the digital locker and other things. And so this six-hour microcourse is in there, and it will be free for your personal use uh, once you uh, support us. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to watching the rest of this, too. I may do that, too. Date night, watch this little Enneagram video. That's great. I'd I love to use this Enneagram as a tool, not just to find out more about myself, which is kind of what everybody does at the beginning, but you can also go the next step and find out about all the numbers. Yeah. And it helps you be empathetic towards all types of people. And one thing I love that Shane says um, in this spiel was when it comes to helping people, you can only take people as far as you have gone yourself. Now it just kind of blew my mind and kind of gave me, um, permission to find out more about this stuff because it's it's a worthy thing you know it's worthwhile yeah and and actually like one of the pushbacks he mentions is how it could be a selfish pursuit but yeah finding out about the other numbers like some people be like well why do i care about the other number i just totally. want to know about me <laughs> uh but finding out about the other numbers i've actually heard in fact 
Um, I know a guy that's working at the Dave Ramsey headquarters, as well as uh, Shane said they some of the folks do this at Ozark Christian College. And that is, I don't know if it's Enneagram specifically, but they'll have a, a personality test of types that will give insight to how people tick and what they're wired, um, whether it's a disc analysis or one of the others. But they'll use it as a tool in the workplace. They'll literally post what their number or what their personality type is on the outside of their door. So if you understand <laughs> how you interact with different personality That's types, amazing, then when you walk into a meeting and you go, oh, I'm getting ready to have a meeting with an enthusiast, it's like, I better see like how much fun he had this weekend, how his family's doing before I dive right into business. That's awesome. Or, you know, or et cetera. That's really good. I think I'm going to give the test to my worship team. I've been thinking about that for a while. That Them and the, uh, my church staff, and totally. just to kind of see, might change the way you it's interact. Actually, and, it's a funny, it's sort of like an icebreaker too to find out their number and laugh about some of their quirks that can be described in their number. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, a. I think that's a great idea. I think any anybody that's part of a team or leading a team, uh, obviously, this could be a tool. Anybody, as Shane says, that's in a disciple making group. I mean, we. We have um, the Trust and Follow Jesus curriculum, and in, in starting a discipleship group with that, if you're walking with some guys for a while and you've already done spiritual biographies, this could be a great alternative. Maybe you get six months or a year down the road and you're continuing to walk with people. Maybe it's like, hey, let's check out what Enneagram number we are and why we why we relate to each other this way. It could be another great idea for a discipleship group. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, I, I would just finish by encouraging everybody to take every thought captive. If this was something that you think you could find useful, great. I hope you become a supporter of Renew. Recurring donors will get access to that digital locker. I, I hope that's something you would prayerfully consider. And I thank you in advance. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you all next time. Take care. Take care.